Colossians 2, 6 through 15. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Uh, the first few pages of uh, the life story of Louis Zamperini uh, gripped me uh, like few other stories that I've read. Um, the, uh, the most popular biography of his life uh, opens with him stranded at sea. Uh, his plane as a World War II bombardier has crashed um, and he's stuck on a raft in the middle of the ocean. And the first scene of the opening of the book, he falls off the raft. He's been circled by sharks for days and a shark starts making a dive towards him. And that's like, that's how the first scene of the book starts. So like you start off reading, you relax, and then all of a sudden your pulse rate leaps, uh, you know, uh, in just the, the first few pages. Now, not to spoil the part, the shark scene, he ends up being stranded at sea for 47 days. So just think about your week. About seven days, now just add 40 to that and put yourself in the middle of the ocean and sharks. So tough, tough start for Louis at the beginning of this book. Um, he, he, his life is incredible. I mean, it's, if there's ever a life worthy of, of a book being written about it, uh, he, his, his life story contains him qualifying uh, as a long-distance runner for the 1936 Olympics. Um, he lives through the Great Depression. Uh, you know, before that, he becomes a pilot, as I mentioned, in World War II. Uh, he crashes. He survives after the sharks and the whole thing. Um, uh, then he endures, like, that's the easy part of his story, the ocean bit. Uh, then he endures horrific treatment uh, in a World War II prison camp. Uh, he miraculously survives. Uh, the book about his life, uh, they made a movie about it as well, is called Unbroken. Uh, it's a fine title, but it's kind of misleading because he is most certainly broken in the book. Um, and that's actually where a lot of the power of the story comes from. Um, after the war, uh, Zamperini struggles to deal with the sheer trauma that he's experienced. And of course, there's no other 
way around that, right? The body keeps the score, um, as, they, as they say. And um, he has to process the trauma that, that, that he's been through. Um, he, he, you know, copes as many of us would. He ends up drinking heavily. He kind of becomes an alcoholic. Eventually, he has this powerful conversion experience. It's like uh, back, you know, in the, uh, you know, the time of like the great tent revivals when there were like the Billy Graham thing was just going and uh, Zamperini goes to one of those, uh, you know, experiences and he encounters God's love um, and it, it changes. It. It's already been a, an incredible story and it sort of feels like how much more can there be of this guy's life? And yet um, he comes to experience the grace and forgiveness of God crashing into his own life, healing his own heart. And then he does staggering, astonishing things where he goes and he finds the cruelest guard that was over him in the war camp and he offers him forgiveness. And it's just like this, like if you're not crying at this point of the book, like, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you at that point. Just like, you know, that's probably it. You're probably not gonna be crying at very much in life um, and that's okay, you know, just make, make peace with yourself. But um, he, he goes on to forgive his captors who are absolutely brutal. And in the later years of his life, he, he kind of becomes a spokesperson for the love of Christ, and he becomes an advocate for at-risk youth. It's like, how much good can this, this person do? Uh, so read Unbroken if you want to check, check it out. But when I think about like what a full life is, one of the people my mind goes back to is Louis Zamperini. And honestly, when I think about Louis Zamperini and his full life, I kind of think like full life for me, not so realistic, like, I'm not going to qualify for the Olympics. I'm not going to be a, a war pilot. I'm certainly, hopefully, not going to be stranded in the ocean for 47 days, surviving on a raft. Super chap lips, by the way. I hopefully am never going to have to endure a, a prison camp. I hopefully am never going to have to forgive my captors. And so when I think about a full life, Louis Zamperini led a full life. I'm like, well, my life's going to be like, if this is full life, my life's here, Right? It's not realistic. And I think we kind of come to the story of the, of the scriptures that way a little bit. Like, here's Jesus, and then like, here's my life. <laughs> or like, here's the apostle Paul, and I know he had some sin, but like, I'm way down here. Like, or David, like, yeah, but come on. Like, me, like, I'm just like taking the F train to work, and everyone smells funny. Like, <laughs> what does it mean to live a full life? I think that's an important question. I think it's dealt with in this text. I want to I look at it. But there's a scene from Zamperini's life, Louis Zamperini's life, that comes into my mind from time to time. And that was when he qualified for the Olympics in 1936. He shows up at the Olympic Village. And now, even now, it's way more bling than it used to be in 1936. But like, he talks about being like at the height of the depression and not having enough money to ever go down the store to the drugstore for a sandwich. And then walking into the Olympic Village and every single day for all the athletes was a massive heaping feast. And he talks about the, like struggling to comprehend the reality of the world that he was coming from coming from, and this heaping feast that was set before him every single, every single day. He didn't realize, in a sense, the story that he had been living in until something so shockingly different was put right in front of him, and it's difficult to comprehend. Like, how do I make sense? I feel that. I feel something like that. Like, I see a full life in Zamperini. I, I see a full life in Jesus, and then I see my experience. I, I know something of what my life is, and I think that I've got a handle on it, and then something like a feast is laid in front of me, and I'm like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know where to put this. I don't know how to process. And I think sometimes the scriptures are a little bit like that for us. 
In the middle of this passage, it says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. All of Yahweh, all of God, no comprehensive like place for this, for the first hearers of it, lives in a person. And you, in union with that person, who's, by the way, not present, has brought you to fullness. Fullness. We have the best language in our songs at church, don't we? But really and truly, you're like, I wonder if the everything bagel I ate earlier left poppy seeds in my teeth. Right? That's what our concerns are. It's like the fullness of Christ living in bodily force. Like, I'll have a, uh, an everything bagel, bagel toasted with lox bread and I'm late for church. Like there's like the everyday nature of our lives. It's like, how do I comprehend like living in the Great Depression and a feast in the Olympic Village? How do I comprehend my Monday morning commute and the reality that somehow it says that all the fullness of God dwell in Jesus and somehow in union with Jesus, I'm brought into fullness. It can't, are we just blowing smoke in here? Like what's going on? What does this fullness mean? What can it mean? When I read a passage like this, if I'm honest, I think a lot, I think about something like Zamperini wandering from depression era poverty into the feast of the Olympic Village, struggling to comprehend. I don't realize how often, like the messages that I pick up on a regular basis, the way my soul is being formed. Do we even have time to think about the way our soul is being formed? But whatever that is, the story I'm living in, so often I imagine it is basically shaped by some amount of lack some perceived scarcity. And so to stumble into like the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form, I've been brought to fullness, a feast at the Olympic Village. It's like, how do I even deal with this? So much of my, my mind, like a ticker tape, returns back to like, I don't quite have enough time or energy or resources or, or, or opportunity. I'm not enough, right? Like the voice of shame plays in our hearts. I'm not enough, like, the voice of shame is to turn the, you know, the, the, the voice of the critic on your own spirit. We have this Instagram comparison culture in the world. I know very well people that I like are living a better life than me because I see them on vacation and they seem to be winning. And here I am. It's raining here. Everyone in the F smells funny. What can it possibly mean to have been brought to fullness in Christ? Paul the Apostle writing from a, a, a hole-in-the-wall jail where people had to bring him his basic necessities is writing to help this church uh, in this, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, this emerging church in this city in the Roman Empire and in, 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 to the Colossians. He's writing for the sake of their endurance that they would continue in whatever it is, the fullness that he's talking about. And, the, and, what, and what he does to describe that is in service of their continuing to understand what that fullness is. So I, I know that was a confusing way to say it, but let's start here. 
There are a bunch of pictures in the scriptures of what a full life is. We have long narratives of people's lives and then there's metaphors that are returned to over and over again. And one of the pictures that shows up a couple of times, both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament, for what a full life looks like. How can you picture it? How can you begin to get your imagination moving in the right direction to understand it is a picture of a thriving tree. Listen how Paul describes the life of being united to Christ in the first few sentences of this. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul is giving us, whether we can agree with him or not, a picture of a full life. And he's using this image of a thriving tree that's shown up a couple of other times in the scripture. As a good Jewish boy who ends up becoming a very elite rabbi, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul, most certainly would have been read the first of the Psalms, the first of the 150 um, you know, songs and poems of Israel's praise and worship book. And so the first Psalm starts this way. Listen to it. I had a fantastic experience of trying to walk my boys through this in detail a week ago, drawing out pictures for them, and like 15 minutes into my fantastic illustrated lesson, they got into a fight, so it was wonderful. I'm nailing it, I'm gonna write a parenting book. Um, here's what it says, blessed is the one, you wanna, you wanna hear a good psalm for middle school? Here we go. Uh, blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, seventh graders, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Whatever it means to live a full life, this is one of the metaphors. Just pay attention for just a second to these images. A tree planted by streams of water, so like a root system that goes down and is regularly nourished. Like it doesn't re really matter what season it is. The water's perpetually there. It yields its fruit in season, which I'm grateful for. It doesn't say it yields fruit all the time, no, nonstop, no matter what. It says it yields fruit in season. There are times in life where you're, you're obviously producing a certain amount of fruit in your life. There's character fruit and there's, there's, there's accomplishment fruit, but then there's times where, where you just need to see the leaf does not wither. Like all I'm doing is not dying. How about that? How about that for right now? I'm not dying. Maybe I'm not producing at a high level right now, but I'm not dying. The leaf is withering. This is a picture of a full life. There are seasons. Zamperini had this. Jesus had this. Seasons of output and then seasons of rest. Seasons of recovery. This is a picture of a full life. Planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season, leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now this means that if you trust God, you can get a Cadillac and a mansion and never have to worry financially again. And that's what we're changing as a church to the prosperity gospel right now. Welcome, this is our first edition. No, I'm just, I'm kidding. Whatever they do prospers. What on earth does that mean? Does that mean like you just name it and claim it? You just, you know, just send in, you know, send in, get the, get the hanky from the guy on television and you'll be blessed? Of course not. It means that if your life is nourished in this way, it's living by the stream, it's producing fruit, its leaf does not wither, like, it's, like the life of God is flowing through your life, like, like out to the branches, and what is that producing? If that's taking place, and whatever you do prospers means that, whatever sort of narrative turns your story takes, you can't be taken outside of God. Who whatever you do prospers is kind of connected to Romans 8, 28, like, 
whatever happens to someone who's connected to God and called according to his purpose, God can work all things together for good. Right, we know as a church, we're not naive to know we're gonna go through suffering. We're gonna go through traumatic grief at times. We're gonna go through pain. We're gonna go through uh, joy. We're gonna experience the wedding and the promotion and, and, and the birth of a child or, 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 or the richness of friendship or an incredible meal, but we're also gonna go through whatever they do prospers. L- literally, that means that like, it can be true that the activity and production of your life is in union and connection with the root system and is prospering in the sense that it is connected to the whole. It is in step with God's plan. So those are the phrases from Psalm 1, and they're very similar to the same picture that he's painting here in Colossians. It says that you would be rooted and built up. Rooted and built up. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this, but basically attention is paid to the seen and unseen parts of your life. Attention is paid to the seen and unseen parts of your life, and, and it is rooted and built up. So it's, it's in union with Jesus that your root system is being tended to, and what people see in your life, your, your visible character is being tended to. I, I want you to think about that for just a second in a real honest way. No one can hear your thoughts, thank God. What is the unseen root system in your life? What supplies you on a daily basis? My very best mornings are the mornings that I fight against my sloth, I fight against my selfishness, and I get up before I need to, and I, and I sit on this one little crack in my couch because it props me up the best, and I put this green pillow behind me, and I, and I sit there, and I try to sort of have a, a basically like straight posture, and I pray, and I invite the Holy Spirit to guide my time, and then I read through the lectionary. I read through uh, a morning psalm, an Old Testament reading, and, and I always like want to fly through the Old Testament reading because I'm like, what is even happening here? And then I get to, and I'm like, I want to get to the gospel, and then what I do is I have a couple of other like you know, devotional type books that I read. They're really short. And then I've, I sit there and I used to sit there for five minutes in total silence. Now I try to sit there for 10 minutes in total silence. And I'm not like, hmm, I'm not floating. I'm, not, I'm just like, just sitting still. You know what I hear? The voice of my fan ticking. But I, I, my best mornings start with trying to listen for the voice of God, trying to have some inhale and exhale of God's presence because for me, that is the root system of, of, of my life. And when I do it versus when I don't do it, there's a tremendous difference in my day. If I can find a way to begin with prayer, reading, with writing in silence, I begin to feel connected to the root system of my life so that whatever is built up in the seen part of my day feels like it's established and has traction. So he says be rooted and built up. Then he says be strengthened in the face. Basically, you need energy. Energy is necessary to live the life that we live in the world. And even if you're in union with Christ, you still need to be strengthened and built up in in that reality. He says there's an energy necessary to go on in the spiritual life. And it comes according to the pattern that you were taught. Go back on a regular basis to the fullness of Christ. I'm gonna say more about that in a little bit, so I'm gonna keep going. The, the, the thing that he says that will be produced, and this is interesting, this, this is hit multiple times in this letter, is the fruit of being rooted and being strengthened in the, in the visible part of your life is that you will overflow with thankfulness. The outflow of your life 
would be to treasure the things that are happening to you, to treasure the experiences that you're going through, to treasure the, the relationships that you're having. Think about what type of life would be overflowing with thankfulness. Just think about it for a little bit. And the thing is like, it feels a little naive to us, especially as New Yorkers. There's like a sophistication or like uh, an experience level of, of life uh, where maybe we're too cool or tough or whatever, but thankfulness is not like the natural outflow of our life. But thankfulness is so connected to joy. Being able to slow down and savor the small parts of your life actually means that your life is good and full versus always perceiving the scarcity and the lack in your life. That's the exact opposite of overflowing with thankfulness is always perceiving what isn't there. We kind of live trapped in that place, don't we, from time to time, always perceiving what isn't there. So the Apostle Paul is saying, here's a picture of a full life. You're in union with God, the God who made you. You're, you're made in God's image. Now you've been redeemed and brought in. You've put down roots into Christ. The seen and unseen parts of your life are being nourished. There's a type of fruit that's being produced. And the, and the staggering thing he says he wants them to do is to continue. is just to keep going, is to endure, to live in a way that the scholar and risk theorist Nicholas Taleb says he calls anti-fragile, to keep going without breaking. And sometimes that is much harder in the world to do certainly than it is to say. Able to keep going in the chaos and disorder of the world, to be that tree able to endure the challenges that we have on a regular basis to meaning. Like, I've just gone through a week. What on earth did I do? What on earth did it mean? Why am I so exhausted? Why do I feel alone more often than, than, I, than I wish I did? Be like the tree that lives by the river and then continue. That's the message. It's remarkably simple. <laughs> A book came on my radar a few years, uh, a few months back. Um, I guess this guy's written a few, a few books uh, on the sort of like um, the things that nature can teach us about, about uh, our lives in the world. But this book is called The Hidden Life of Trees. A pastor mentioned um, that he was reading it a few months back and I read a section of it that mentioned the older trees in a grove will often, they'll suppress the growth of the younger trees and it feels like, you first read that, you're like, what, what are they doing? What's their problem? Why are, they, why are they holding these young trees back? But the thing is, like, in the grove, they're keeping these young trees from growing as fast as they might so that they can live for a long time, so that they basically can continue, so that their root structures will be strong enough and mature enough to endure when the storm comes or when they have to overcome a blight. Or they have, and and I, I was just thinking about that. They're, they're, they're not letting these trees grow as fast as they might these older trees, however they do it, so that those trees can grow strong and so that they can grow long. I think about that type of thing a lot in my own life. I think about it with the responsibility of trying to raise four kids in the, in the world that we live in. I see myself, I see Alice and I, like parents on some level, like I'm a steward of my children's innocence. Like I, I have, I have, I'm some level of a governor on what is allowed into their life. Like I'm not gonna let them experience everything that they might 
at this age because I want them to grow long and strong. I want them to put down deep roots. So like to be a, a preserver of my children's innocence, like I, I just like was inspired by the trees. These guys are nailing it. I wanna protect them in the midst of many challenges. And another thing, when you start to get into the life of trees, um, you, you start to see there are a couple of like primary causes when a tree dies before it would on its own. Like before, if a tree dies and it's not because of old age, there are a couple of causes. One is like you would imagine adverse conditions, right? There's, there's, there's a, a drought or there's a dryness, right? Or, or there's oversaturation, right? There, there is uh, adverse conditions. The other reason is disease, like either through an insect or contracted from another tree, a tree gets an internal struggle that it can't overcome and dies from, from that disease. The last is catastrophic events, a forest fire or timber harvesting. Like, why are you telling us this? Because so, trees are super interesting, relax, and we need a little break from all the theology, okay? Paul's trying to help this church in this city in the Roman Empire to endure. And the things that he says are gonna be the challenges to their endurance, are the very things that kill trees. <laughs> it's the system of the world, it's internal struggle, and it's catastrophic events. These are the things that kill trees, these are the things that kill faith, these are the things that shipwreck lives. The, the, the archetypes that the scripture returns to on a, on, a, on a regular basis, the three big ones that sort of categorize the resistance to human beings living in union with God and the intimacy that we were made for is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three big labels under which we put a lot of the resistance that we see in the world. The very same things that kills trees, adverse conditions, internal struggle, and catastrophic condemning events. World, flesh, devil, systems, world, systems that are built without accounting for God or accounting for human beings that are made in the image of God. The flesh, right, this internal struggle to prioritize malformed appetites, to put ourselves first always. And the devil, right, I know it's like, geez, it's Halloween, but like, are we really gonna talk about the devil? Like, hang on a minute. We're sophisticated uh, New Yorkers here, thank you, but we, we're educated people. The devil really, like, but, but in Hebrew, the word, the Satan is translated the accuser. This is how the enemy almost always presents to us is as an accuser, you will hear the voice of condemnation playing in your life. It is the enemy of your soul. And it is a, a form of resistance that the scriptures are not shy about naming. Paul puts it in this section of this letter this way. He says, world, don't be taken captive by an empty or hollow philosophy of life. One that is appealing at first, but it's hollow. This is what he puts in this exact passage. Don't be taken captive. The word is literally don't be kidnapped. Don't be thrown into a van and driven down the road by a false philosophy of life that is empty. Don't be ruled by the flesh, by these malformed desires, by this primary selfishness. And don't give in to condemnation. These three primary forms of resistance, don't give in to them. So I wanna quickly look at them so we can see what's coming our way 
And so hopefully we can see how the, the message of the gospel applies to each one. So see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Essentially, if you want to summarize this, there are messages that you will hear regularly in the world that do not have the wisdom to lead you to a full life. What mechanism do you use to evaluate the messages that are given to you on a staggeringly regular basis as a human being in the world? How do you determine this is wisdom and this is folly, this is true and this is false? How do you determine in your life, like, and be honest about your mechanism, is it like, I lead with my feelings, if it feels right, I'm into it. I lead with like what I was taught by my parents. I lead with just like a general sense of like, here's my collection of wisdom that I've got. What is your framework? Like, What's the mesh wiring around your life, around your thought life that through which you process whether something is true or not? Because Paul's saying that there are hollow and deceptive philosophies in the world that will basically like make you into a consumer. They will appeal to your selfishness. They will lead you to break your relational commitments. They, will, uh, they, they, are, they are froth, they are vanity, they are vapor. They, are not, can, they do not contain the wisdom to lead you into a full life. How will you know? There are messages you will hear regularly in the world that do not have the wisdom to lead you to a full life. I read a bunch of commentaries on this in preparation and I I don't even have time to get into what the Colossians were wrestling with, but it was basically like a hybrid form of legalistic Judaism and like imperial Roman religion that was at play in the different cities that they were were in in the middle of. And this idea of Gnosticism, which was this dominant sort of like philosophy that the New Testament is up against. A bunch of the letters are written, you know, contesting Gnosticism, this dualistic picture of the world that like uh, matter is bad and heavenly things are good. And so we're trying just to get to this idea plane that, that rescues us from our real life. And, and, and actually the gospel is saying doing the exact opposite. It's saying God wants to redeem the world. He incarnates in the story. Your, your, your daily commute matters. Your, your everything bagel is important. Like real life, you know, God wants to invade that, not just take you to a, a higher ethereal spiritual plane. And so that's part of the false teaching the Colossians are dealing with. But, but the important question for, for you, because I bet you don't care at all what the Colossians were dealing with really. But what are the hollow and deceptive philosophies of life that you're contending with and how will you sort them out? Like what will you entrust to lead your life? And if you haven't thought about that or paid attention to it, then something is leading your life without your consideration, which seems a little, a little dangerous. The remedy, right, there's a remedy, thank God, that Paul suggests, and it is a daily rootedness in Christ, which again, immediately like, it can start to feel just a little too spiritual language like what does it mean to be daily rooted in Christ? It means to daily do those types of things that connect you to your union with Christ. Remember who you are, right? For me, it's like reading and writing and silence and prayer help me connect back to who I am as a human being made in God's image and united to God through the gospel of Jesus. The, the remedy to this hollow, empty philosophy is a daily rootedness. I sat across in, in a restaurant uh, just down the street with my friend who I did a lot of drugs with in college. And in college, we call him Too Tall Tommy. 
And Too Tall Tommy has gotten sober now. And uh, he was explaining to me his process. And he loves jam bands. He was a fish head. And so like, it's like kind of illegal to go to a fish concert without being remarkably high, is, 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 is what they say. Um, and, and Tommy's been trying to go into this place where he's gone for years remarkably high as a sober person now. And he was telling me about the different things that he does to, to, to stay rooted, to stay connected to his sobriety. And he, and he said this thing to me, and, and, and I've, I've read about it in, in other places. It's actually in uh, one of my favorite novels, Infinite Jest. It's this cake metaphor where basically Tommy was like, listen, I know nothing about baking whatsoever. But if you put the Betty Crocker cake box in front of me and I literally follow the exact instructions I follow them one at a time. At the end of the process, what I have is a cake. I know nothing about making cakes, but if I take the process and I do it one step at a time, what happens at the end is I have a cake. Now, some of us, what we do is we skip that process entirely. You're like, I want to have a cake. I know nothing about making cakes, but I'm just going to sort of give it a shot and see what happens. And you're like, this cake, this cake tastes terrible. Yes, you know nothing about cakes. Paul is writing to a, a, a people that, that are being besieged with messages in the world that threaten to draw their hearts away from God. And he's saying, on a daily basis, make the cake. On a daily basis, show up and remind your heart who you are. Pray and read and write and sit in silence or whatever your, your, your combination is, but stay connected on a daily basis to the fullness of who Jesus is. And what will happen over time is that your soul will be, be formed in a particular way. Remember that Christ lived a life that we are in union with. He died a death that we are in union with. His resurrection is not just something that happened out there. It is our resurrection on a daily basis. His mercy is new every morning. The second piece of resistance that's dealt with here is in, it starts in verse nine. For, all the full, for, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. Let me say this one other way. Paul saying, you have been brought into a whole new way of life. The covenant to repair the world that God began in the person of Abraham and his family and the nation of Israel has now spilt the banks of Israel and is overflowing to anyone who will receive this message of Christ's love. You have been brought into that very same covenant to live in the gospel of Jesus. How do, we, how do we know this? The first is the very wonderful and, and awkward uh, idea of circumcision that shows up in the New Testament all the time. It's wonderful for pastors to talk about. It's like, here's a sign of God's covenant. An entire half of the human race is cut off from it. Uh, good luck out there. And so when the New, the New Testament is talking about circumcision, what it's talking about is there was a physical sign in the body of the men of the nation of Israel to say you're to look in, your, in, in the line of your family for, for my redemption to come in the world through the Messiah I'm going to send. 
And Paul is saying that that covenant love has now spilt the banks of Israel and there is a circumcision of the heart. You are brought into the covenant family of God through what Christ has done in the world. That's what baptism represents. The replacement of physical circumcision is the baptism of our heart, the circumcision of our heart. And the, and the metaphor is you go down into the water and your old life goes away and you're raised to live in, in, in a new life. This is the covenant love, the, 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 the two primary, markers that we have of it are the baptism into the water and this meal. That Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed to bring us in to full union. There's so much here. If I was gonna say the one thing I hope you'll hear from, from, from this, this section is that Paul's writing to people who've been brought into that covenant relationship with Christ. And he's saying, listen, there's still a struggle with that old flesh mechanism. The flesh, when the New Testament talks about it, we've mentioned this so many times, it's not your skin, it's not sexual sin or something. The flesh is a operating system for life that doesn't take God into account. He's saying, you, you've been so formed in this way of operating without taking God into account that you're gonna wanna revert back to it and don't. And the way not to revert back to it is to connect on a daily basis to this fullness of Christ. I wanna tell you one super practical way that you can do this. There's a struggle in each of us between the flesh and the spirit. And, and this struggle, like, is, is, it's not up for grabs. If you're a Christian, it's not like, which one's gonna win? The Holy Spirit is going to win. The Holy Spirit has already won the victory in Jesus. Your, your flesh is crucified with Christ, but that old way still struggles within us. And I wanna tell you one way, very practically, that you can immerse yourself in the fullness of Christ on a daily basis. We have this, if you go to our website, tgcparkslope.com slash Colossians. As we're studying this, each week we're putting up a weekly guide. For our, we're asking all of our groups to go through this together. But one of the things on the weekly guide you'll find for this week is a who am I in Christ? One of the things that can be very easy to forget is your true identity. And so uh, on, there's a PDF on this week's guide that is literally like all the promises of the New Testament for someone who is in union with Christ. And you can literally just go through them slowly. Take a deep breath and say, this is who I am. I am forgiven. I am loved. I am delighted in. I am not only not a mistake, I am made in the image of God. There are plans God has for my life. Like, you just literally go through and meditate on the fullness of who God says you are. That is one way to combat the reality of this, like, selfish old, old mentality that continually crops up in us. And I'm going to read the last thing because we're, we're, we're out of time and we're going to close. When, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision over your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them, triumphing over them by the cross. I just wanna say, the reason we're studying this in groups is because this is so much, it is so dense to really unpack the, the sort of wealth of treasure that is in these words. It takes a lot more than, than, than one ser sermon. But as I said before, the scriptures are not shy to name that there is a condemning force in the world. 
Whatever the Satan is in the Hebrew scriptures, he is an accuser. And the remedy to this condemnation is, is depicted here in the victory of Jesus. Paul is like drawing their attention to the utterly backwards nature of how it works. Like when you think, who was disarmed in the crucifixion of Jesus? <laughs> who was made a public spectacle in the crucifixion of Jesus? Who was nailed to the cross in the crucifixion of Jesus, like all these things happened to Christ. He was arrested with his friends. He was falsely tried. If you wanted to execute someone, you could do it in a, in a variety of ways. The cross was about being made a public spectacle. It was for, for failed revolutionaries to die on the road into the city so everyone can see, do not mess with Rome or this will happen to you as well. Christ was made a public spectacle. He was nailed to the cross and yet, Somehow in the backwards wisdom, the counterintuitive nature of the gospel, Paul is saying in that very defeat, Christ won a victory over our condemnation. Literally, somehow he was being made a public spectacle on our behalf. The accusations nailed above his head contain the accusations that the, the, the enemy would put over any of our lives and there's plenty of fodder for it. None of us have lived a perfect life and yet every single thing that might separate us from God or from one another was nailed to the cross with Christ. So this is the description. When you were dead in your sins, let me say this to you if you don't get anything else. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive through Christ Jesus. So how much do you think God is expecting you to bring to the table in order to qualify for being redeemed. How much do you think God is expecting you to bring to the table to qualify for being forgiven, healed, and brought into the family? However much a dead person could bring. You were dead in your sins, absolutely had nothing to bring, and he made you alive. We do not obey so that God loves us. We do not follow the, the path so that God adopts us into the family. He has resurrected us, made us alive, filled us with his very life. And so we obey and we follow out of love, not out of fear or out of pride. And that is the heart of the gospel. You can't do anything to qualify for it. It is an absolute sheer gift. I've said this in, 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 in a bunch of other sermons, so I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here, but when it says the charge of our legal indebtedness is a Greek word, karagraphon, which uh, is basically what was nailed above Jesus' head. The accusation against a criminal was called the karagraphon, and it was what was nailed against Jesus' head. It would have been nailed against other, others so that the, the public spectacle that was being made, people would know what their crime was. When someone owed a large debt or, or any debt, they would carry a karagraphon, and when that karagraphon was paid in full, there was another word, a Greek word, that was stamped on it, or the translation in the scriptures, is the word tetelestai. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. So the choreographon over Jesus, the choreographon over our lives, this passage is saying that every single thing that would be listed on our choreographon, everything that would be listed on the legal charge against us in the eyes of God has literally been dealt with by Jesus on the cross. He cried out over your life, over your sin and brokenness, it is finished to tell us die. And by that, he disarmed the powers and authorities. My friend Michael was telling me a story in college about his salvation. And he was like, 
was like the ship of my life (laughs) was being led by this tyrant who always ran me down, who always shouted out like the worst types of instructions and then I just followed them. I just was so beaten down by this way of living. And when Christ came into my life, it's like he tied up the, the old captain of this ship that was my life and he tied him to the mast and he took over control and he, he established like peace and harmony and new life. So the ship is, is going, but he said, the, the old shipmaster is still there and he's screaming out and I'm so used to hearing his voice that I, I sometimes want to jolt in response to that old voice that was a tyrant in my life for so long, but I realize that Christ has disarmed that old power and authority. I do not have to live under that voice of accusation. I don't have to live under that voice of shame. One of the most chilling, haunting, beautiful, tear-inducing parts of Louis Zamperini's story is when he confronts this guy called the bird who was one of the worst guards in his prison camp. He talks about how his whole body would jolt when he would hear this guy's voice because it meant agony and torment was on the way. And he goes to this man after the war, after like the allied victory, and this man has been totally disarmed. He can hear the voice again, but it doesn't have the same effect anymore. This is the message of the gospel. Louis Zamperini is miraculously, I think, able to offer healing forgiveness to this man because he knew The accuser in his own life had been disarmed. The message and the power of God's grace and forgiveness had come crashing in, healed and transformed him because he was in union with Jesus. So, summary. (laughs) You're called to live in union with Christ a full life. It's like a tree. It's like a thriving tree. There is tremendous resistance in the world. It's not easy. If you're disillusioned because like I thought this would be different, well, it's because you're not painting on a neutral canvas. There's tremendous resistance. But there are remedies in the message of the gospel. There's a daily rootedness that we can connect to. And basically what that is is to continually put in front of us the victory of Jesus and say, this is the new reality of my identity. This truth of my adoption into the family of God is more true than my you know, these are the ways that I've failed in my life. The message of the gospel is that we're healed and forgiven and brought in. Look to the victory of Jesus. Know that it is yours. Know that it is ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my imagination just flying across a timeline right now, thinking of the apostle locked in a jail writing this and the people in the city receiving it and being nourished by it, and then a community passing on from that moment the reality of this victory and getting to this guy in World War II who had to endure a prison camp and hanging on to these very principles and truths and realities and and help from your spirit. Pass all the way down to us in a middle school in the middle of busy lives in New York City saying, what on earth does this mean for us? There's no way we can translate all of it, God. There's no way we can make it all make sense. We need your Holy Spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply the very specific things that each mind and heart in this room needs. That you would minister to us. We say, come, Holy Spirit. Take the dense richness of what we've just read and apply it in manageable ways to our hearts and minds. Bring healing, bring hope, bring a slightly new perspective, bring a lifting of shame, 
bring a renewed confidence, bring a commitment to different types of mornings than we've been having. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead each person in the commitment and response that they need to make to you. We trust that you can and will do that. In the name of Jesus, amen.